Simon Bose, which is pretty it's pretty ironic because we have had Simon in the studio before, actually, um, which is a little bit of my fault, actually, in the sense that we didn't quite manage to get the um, the recording of Simon's incredible interview um, in November, back in November now, um, up on the system. So anyway, Simon's back to give his account of all his life and all bits and pieces like that um, here in March. So welcome back, Simon. Thank you. You're pretty well versed in the uh, in the Bryanston um, Bry Radio um, kind of <laughs> studio now, aren't you? So not the first time. Um, very, very good it looks too. How does it feel to be back? Very well, since we last met. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great. I think it's the first time I have been back. No, no, it's very good. And I'm very impressed by the way this all has been set up. It's, it's excellent. It really is. Very good. I can imagine not much has changed since you were last here. There may, there's maybe a few more photos yeah. of um, of various other sh- uh, shows that have happened okay. on the wall. No, it's, good. Um, it's a wonderful initiative. It really is. Yeah, definitely. A few, well, a few, definitely a few more things have mm. um, kind of kicked off yeah. since we since we last spoke. Yeah. But um, it's great to have you back anyway. Um, so. Apologies to those who have listened before, but I, I guarantee this one will definitely be more interesting than um than when we last. No, no disrespect, of course, Simon. But um, I know we've got a few more stories to um to talk about, yeah. so it's almost like having a new podcast as well. So that's okay. that's great. Good. Um, so where would you like to start, Simon? There's loads. I'm, I'm sure there's, we've got. Well, loads I mean, to I think we came, I came in last time, didn't we? Uh, didn't I? On the um, we'd done you and I laid wreaths at the uh, Branson uh, War Memorial. Um, on behalf of all the OBs who died in the, in the Second World War. Um, and that was sort of the hook for me to come in and talk about the book that Branson is going to be, is in the course of putting together, which is about stories about all the OBs who were killed in, um, in the Second World War and indeed Malaya and Korea, 83 of them. Um, and there are stories um, that we're, we've been unearthing over the last two or three years um, to make this book, which I hope will be, a really uh, a, a wonderful reminder of those people who gave their their, their lives for 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 this country um, back back then. Um, and since you and I spoke, I've been out in Kenya because one of the things that we're quite keen to do is to try and find uh, or photograph the gravestones of all those OBs um, who are lying overseas. Um, some of them are going to be easier than others. Um, and funnily enough, in Kenya, are, there are three, um, two of whom um, I visited uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and then the third one um, I had wanted to go and find because he, he doesn't actually have a grave as such, but he's got a, he's on the uh, war memorial, Nairobi war memorial. Um, and he was a guy called... Sergeant Paul Peregrine Tweedy, who was killed in an accident in Tanzania um, in, on the 15th of January 1946 in a very small town called Musoma, just, out, um, in, just inside Tanzania. Um, and the interesting thing is there is that, you know, the war had finished in 1945 and you begin to say, so why is he on a war memorial if he was killed in 1946? And the two things there is that... Um, the War Graves Commission, and something I've just learned, um, they they actually extend the, the the period of the Second World War to cover 1947. So that's the reason he's on a war memorial. Um, and the other interesting thing on that one is, and we don't know what accident he was or how he died, and then hopefully one day we may find out. But the interesting thing there is that his, 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 he was a sergeant, 
and I always thought a sergeant was spelt with a G, and it's not. It's spelt with a J, sergeant. Um, and that apparently was something that um, all British uh, British uh, troops were allowed to have. Um, well, the British, but put it this way, the British Army only started spelling sergeant with a G in November 1953. So up until then, the word sergeant was spelt with a J, and that was something that I didn't understand until I was actually standing outside his this war memorial um, four weeks ago. Wow. So mm. I, you you said that kind of like the cause of death was is unknown. We don't know. No. So we don't know. Is there any predictions or any evidence well, it to must, suggest it could no, be No, it's just the fact is that, that he died. We know that he died um, as a result of an accident um, and he must still have been um, in the army. So one can only assume it was an accident. Um, but so many people did die in accidents, actually, in the Second World War, rather than being killed by the enemy. So um, one day we may find out, I don't know, but at the moment we're, we're, we're at a dead end on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And there are three OBs uh, out in Kenya, three, three, right? Two, yeah, two. The other two, one was a, one was a master at school um, called Arthur Mole, and he was killed in a flying accident in Kenya, um, in the, in the Second World War, uh, pilots went out to predominantly America to train, um, to fly, um, but also to other places like South Africa and Kenya. And he died, unfortunately, in Kenya. And then there was another OB who was killed, actually, in a bombing raid in Libya, over Libya, and for some reason is buried in Nairobi, and I'm not sure why that is, but, mm. you know, that's... So that is. Anyway, there are the... Th- three OBs who are actually in, uh, lying out in, in Kenya. Gosh, so in mm. this period of time, which was... Um, so this was obviously during the Second World yes, War. Yes, that's that correct. Right? Yeah. So yeah. in Kenya, was this quite like a hotspot for like a war location? No, it wasn't. Or? It was... No, not at all. Um, so the chap we found, um, Sergeant Tweedy, who I've, who's on the war memorial there, he was with a Kenya regiment. So right. that's, that's why he, he was in Kenya when he died. And as I say, the other... The other one was killed in a flying accident, learning to fly in um, Nairobi, and the other one was killed in Libya, but happens to be buried in Nairobi. And that's slightly odd, unless his family lived in Ni- in Kenya at the time and they wanted it home. That's a, that's a possibility as well. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so obviously you were out in Kenya for a little while and you came back pretty recently within the last month, is that yeah, right? Yeah, 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 that's so, right. But it, we used to, I used to live live in Kenya so yeah, and, live and, and live and worked in Kenya. And so it's rather, it rather like a second home to me. So that's, you know, so we're always happy to go back. So can you talk to us a little bit about why Kenya yeah. has such a special place in your heart yeah, for you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I, <laughs> I left Branson... Um, Back in 1969, and um, my academic record here was was dreadful. I think that's the only word I can describe <laughs> it. And so university certainly was out, um, and I needed to f- get a job pretty quickly. And I had a disastrous um, start in Walls Ice Cream. Um, dreadful start, and so I realised that ice cream wasn't for me. But I happened to bump into a chum of mine who I'd shared a study with at Branson. Um, up, we were in the up in the Hardy Roof, which I don't know if you know what the Hardy Roof is, but if, gosh, is that like this? Is that the central? Is that well, it's, no, it's the wing. It's yes, oh, it's, one of the it's, wings. yes, right, right up in the east. Yeah, right of course. Up in the east. So, anyway, <laughs> um, I, I shared a 
study with him and I bumped into him one day in London or one weekend in London. I said, oh, Nick, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, um, I'm in the tea industry. And I thought, oh, God, I better an ice cream. So <laughs> I, um, I wrote to his company and um, one thing followed another. They gave me a job and I joined them in London. Um, and it went from there, really, and very quickly... I found myself being sent out to live and work in Kenya. So, yeah, so what drew you to tea more than ice cream? I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure, especially kids, probably prefer ice cream, but I know, is there something about the trade that fascinates you? Oh, yeah, more the trade, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I was posted to, when I was at ice cream, I was posted to Watford. Um, and Watford in those days was not a great place to be. And... It just wasn't a job for me and the guy who, um, you know, and this is something actually we all need to remember is that um, the manager had a particular distaste for public school boys. Right. And so I was a marked person the minute I walked in and being the only one that was in his depot. And that was a big learning curve for me. Um, and it was just a question then of realising that this actually is the real world and perhaps mm. Branson in my time, had not been the real world. One was cocooned here. Yeah, sheltered. And this guy just didn't like, just didn't like me. And that was it. So he, um, he went out of his way to make life a bit difficult. And so it was therefore, I was therefore on, realised I had to move on quite quickly. Um, and it was therefore just this, intro, this bumping into this guy who I shared a study with. And I thought, tea, that has to be better than ice cream. And thank heavens it was. And it was um, it was a, a great career for me. So, what kind of um, setbacks and difficulties did you face with that kind of uh, re- that you had that relationship between you and well, your kind of your boss? If that so, oh, your confidence. Yeah, I mean, usually. I was a, you know how old was I then? Eighteen, nineteen, I suppose, eighteen, and I, I my confidence was completely shattered. And when you're an eighteen-year-old and you're you, you, you know you're you were sitting in the middle of Watford and I was in digs and I didn't know anybody and this guy just went out of his way to make life difficult. You've got to grow up pretty quickly. Mm. Um, Character building for sure. Well, you do. Um, and so that's how one you just had to get on with. And if you didn't, you sink. So I got on with it and uh, realised that this wasn't for me. And, um, you know, I was lucky then to find something that was for me. Right. And, went, and that went from there, really. So was your first kind of um, initiative, like your first move within the tea mm. industry to go straight out to Kenya? Yeah, so what you, when you went, went into the tea industry, it's still slightly like that again today, but life's very different as a young chap in the tea industry now. Um, you, they, they basically say to you, you do five years here learning how to taste tea, and my first job was to empty the tea taster spittoons, and gradually they let you... They show you the art of tasting tea. And that went well. Um, and I loved it and I enjoyed it. And I found it stimulating and interesting. And there were tea auctions in, 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 in um, Plantation House to go to every, every Monday. And there was just a buzz about the place, which um, was, was, I found, invigorating after mm-hmm. ice cream. But anyway, um, after literally I'd only been there about 10 months, and they said, we've got a problem in Kenya. We need to sh- send a senior man out. And he's got to have a junior to go with him because we need a junior out there to do the, the mundane work in, in Mombasa. And I was chosen. And I was 
sent out there, and I wasn't even 20. And that was it. And they said, you'll do six, well, you'll do a year there, and then we're going to send you down to Malawi, where tea's grown also. And so I had um, about 18 months um, in Kenya and Malawi, just having a hell of a good time at a young age, being paid to live in Africa, which is just unbelievably good. Um, and it was um, a tremendous training ground. Yeah, Simon, so talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, that's quite a contrast between mm. the UK and Kenya, mm. Malawi. What, what's yeah. that cult? Was that quite a culture shock for you? Uh, yeah, it was, because I think the furthest I've ever been in, before going there has been France. I don't know <laughs> anywhere else. And so um, it was good. It was, um, again, you had to get on with it. There were lots of people, in, certainly in Mombasa. So you, I shared a, a, a flat with two other guys who were in the tea industry with different companies. Um, and that got me going. And then I found a girlfriend very quickly whose dad had a water skiing boat and a deep sea fishing boat. And suddenly life was, you're made. And it, it, was, it was a hell of a good time. There no responsibilities either. So I mean, it was just it was wonderful. Um, and then you went when I went down to Malawi, and that was a very different country to Kenya. Um, but again, I met lots of very good people. I met my wife in 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 uh, Malawi, who's uh, who was out there nursing from from London. Um, and yeah, things just went from there really. Great. So you really kind of had quite a nice wonderful, entrance into, wonderful, yeah, you know. wonder, a wonderful training, a great grounding which then stood me in great stead for when I came back. And then, you know, um, I came back to the UK, left that company, um, joined a company called Lance Tetley, Tetley Teabags. Um, and they sent me straight back out to Kenya. And then I ran, I then found myself running their tea buying operation in Mombasa for five years. Um, and at this stage, I was, what, 23? Yeah, 20, young, right. Still Super. very young. And, but you know, was just an, a golden opportunity and it was a, a very very um it was a very very good time for me absolutely and mm. outside of kind of the social scene the yeah. social aspects yeah. um that you you know the wonderful times you had out in yeah. africa um in terms of the training itself quite um quite uh regimented from the yeah. sounds of it um so you were learning to tea taste yes. I mean, what was that like and what did you have to do as a part well, of that so, training so um with tea tasting you once you start the whole thing you 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 go down what they call a batch, which is sort of pots of tea, um, which are made in a special uniform way. Um, and it's, it's, you, they're put on a, on a big sort of counter. Um, and you just go up and down, tasting these teas, comparing one tea with another tea, value, learning how to value the tea. Because you're gonna, you, if you want to buy it, you've got to pay the right price for it. So that's really, and that was just about confidence building. So the first, my first 10 months in London, I would, that's what I did every single day. Tasted three, four, five hundred cups of tea a day. Um, and I would do it with um, senior tea tasters and they'd point you in the right direction and say, have you picked up that saint or have you, can you see how much better that tea is against another tea? And it was, for the, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic training. It really was. And, and, um, for me, I was lucky because normally I would have had to have done five years of that and then been sent on a three-month trip to somewhere like India or, or Kenya just to understand then how tea was grown and sold in auctions. There. But I, I was lucky. I was actually sent out to work for you know, the first 18 months of the first time and then 
ideal training. And that training was, I mean, that was just the best training you could ever, ever work for. Yeah, super. And in terms of the value of the tea, I mean, how, how, how are you able to distinguish between a tea that was perhaps lower quality mm. against a higher class tea? And okay. how do you know if it tasted good, if that makes sense? Okay, well, I was very lucky to have, when I got to Nairobi, um, for the, my second, when I was out, went out there for five years, I spent the first nine months in Nairobi sharing an office with another tea chap called Peter Booth Smith, who'd also been at Branson. So we, we then found out with each other. And he was very good. He would he taught me a lot about tea, um, and that his sort of um, support and the training that I got. You you learn we, tea is about all about sight, smell, and taste. Mm. And if at the end of the day you come up with a tea that really looks bright and invigorating, um, that's going to be of more value than something which is looking grey and plain and tastes dull. So you, that's how you learn. The whole the way through, it's, it's all really done on a on a on a on a site and and taste and smell basis, um, and it's just great. It's basically just keep on going and going and going until you've got the confidence. And, and people would say to you that it takes takes about seven years for somebody to become a really qualified tea taster. Right. Who's got the ability to add value to a company? Who's got the ability to be able to? Um, value tea and buy tea um, in, in, in a professional way. So it's quite an extensive process. It's a very extensive process. You know, there's process. always, I'm yeah, sure, yeah, room yeah. to and some people, skills. Some people can't do it. I mean, some people just, funnily enough, yeah, don't have a palate. You haven't got a palate, you can't be a tea taster. Absolutely. So, you know. Um, but I was lucky, it, was, um, it worked out very, very well. That's incredible. Mm. And coming back from Africa after that extensive training, that great kind mm. of introduction yeah. to the tea industry and life in general, coming back, I believe you rose to become the CEO, is that yeah. right, of a tea, yeah, of a tea based yeah. company? Yeah. So talk to us about that journey. Well, so, um, so I came back and um, I, left, um, I left the company, Tetley Tea, and I joined a tea broking company in London, um, which was a wonderful 13 years. And they, they sold tea in the, in, in the London auction. It was a London auction system. And they sold the tea, um, sold tea on behalf of their clients who were basically in, in Africa, in, in, in London. Um, and so I was heavily involved in that. Um, primarily got there because of my time that I'd spent living in Malawi. Um, and that became that was a very enjoyable um, time. But I soon began to realise that London was the London auction system was declining. And the reason for that was that every tea producing country, so Sri Lanka, India, Kenya, all had their own tea auctions. And so, quite rightly, those auction centres became far more important than sending the tea up to London. So yeah. London was dying down. And I thought, gosh, we, we need to do something different. So with, with the tea brewing company, I set up a, a, a company with them called St. James's Teas, and that was all about adding value to the tea. And that all came about one day when I was walking down, I used to, was born and bred in Cheltenham, I was walking down um, with Ros, my wife, um, promenade in Cheltenham, there was a Habitat store there. And in the window of the Habitat store, they were selling tea. And I thought, well, Habitat's a furniture shop, not a, not a tea shop. So anyway, I went in and I bought the tea to take home. And it was terrible. I drank it. It was terrible. 
So I thought, well, I'll have to do something about this. So I wrote to the owner of uh, Habitat, who was Terence Conrad. Mm. Now, Terence Conrad, as you probably know, was a old brown stone. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and he was a, a, a great man. Um, and I wrote a letter to him saying, look, I'm, you know, you just need to know that I was at Brance, and I hope you don't mind my writing, etc., etc. But your tea that you're selling in Habitat isn't doing you any wow. justice. Very honest of you, Simon. Well, it was. <laughs> yeah, I had nothing to lose. My wife said to me, well, it's only a first-class stamp, so what the heck? And to my amazement, I got a letter back from him saying, come and see us. Wow. So I did. And I didn't see him, but I saw his sister, Priscilla Coluccio, who was the buying director of Habitat. And she sat me down very nicely, and she said, well, you know, what are you here for? And I said, well, you know, your tea is just... It's, the packaging look, look, looks terrible, but the contents are ghastly. And she said, well, what do you want to do about it? So I said, well, you know, we want to get you some better tea. Well, to cut a very long story short, I walked out of that meeting with a contract to supply a habitat with all their tea for that Christmas. Wow. And I hadn't a clue how to start. I, was, I didn't know. <laughs> Quite a task said, you set yourself I'll, I'll there, Simon, I'm going to be honest. I did. And we did. And we did it. And it worked. And so I thought, OK, right, now, what do we do, what do, we do yeah, next? Yeah, where go from that? And... We are offices right beneath St Paul's Cathedral. So I went and knocked on the door there, the shop there, because they had millions of visitors going through. And I said, what about a St Paul's Cathedral tea? And the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, absolutely. And he, and he, and he said, well, while you're about it, go and see Westminster Abbey, and I'll give you the introduction to Westminster Abbey, Tower Bridge, and Tower of London. And they're the four biggest yeah. tourist outlets in the country. And I then ended up supplying them with all their gift tins to be sold to tourists. And by this stage, it was getting a bit ridiculous. So you almost blew up in a way. So yeah, you know, I the did. amount of kind of outflow you had, absolutely. And then well, one thing led to another, and um, I got a phone call from Heathrow Airport, and they said, you, we, we, we want you to do tea for us. And so we had to do that. And it was it just one thing followed the other for the other, which was just brilliant. Um, and then I got involved with a German, a very, very large German organisation and started importing their herbal teas into the UK. Mm. Um, and suddenly tea broking for me had gone and I was into a new world of, you know, sourcing tea, big customers. Um, and I had to make, then make a decision and I decided that I'd, I'd stop the tea broking side and just focus on the value-added side really yeah yeah, yeah. Went, absolutely yeah so yeah. You, you must have kind of gained although you had quite a roster of skills at that point anyway you must have gained quite a lot of knowledge experience yeah. supplying these huge huge you, companies yeah. these massive names yes that's right um because you know that soon brought me into having to deal with tesco right and all the big supermarkets and then you really are um, <laughs> the in the sharp end of it all yeah um but what then happened was that the German company, I by this stage, I was getting my tea, all my tea packed by a company in Dorset, just in kind of Ferndown. And I got wind of the fact that they were selling it. They were wanted, the, the owner wanted to sell it. And so together with the Germans, um, we got the German company to buy the Dorset business. And that's when I left London and moved down here.
And that was 30, over 30 years ago. Gosh, so was, would you say that was um, a key transition from kind of your uh, your work and your business and the tea trade to what you now specialise in now, kind of y- yes. that more historical Yeah, absolutely. OD. And so instead of being a tea taster, I was now actually running a business. And that's vastly different. So um, although I never lost the my love of being able to go in and taste tea with my, the tea buyers that I had working with me, um, I had to run a business, and so I'm afraid the fun of tea tasting and got had had to take the back seat. Um, didn't stop me trying to interfere occasionally. But <laughs> I was then running a company that was um, heavily involved in 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 the big supermarket area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, talk to us a little bit more about that kind of transition into you know what you're now more involved with um, actively. You know, so, kind of what I do historical so, side so, what what I do now is that we sold the business was we the German um, sold the, the business in Dorset uh, eleven twelve years ago, um, and that was just about the right time for me to be able to say I've done my my full time career. Um, so, but I want, still wanted to do something you know keep my hand in, and so I'm now a tea consultant. And I look after a little tea business in down in Kent, who were really very much similar to what I was doing when I set St James's Teas up all those years ago. Wow. And my role is to mentor the CEO, um, which um, I do. Um, and because it's all about tea with them, um, I'm able to hopefully bring a bit of sort of um, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great, and it's certainly nice to give something back. Cool. So you kind of add that dimension, yeah, that yeah. extra, you yeah, know, insight right. into the into the industry. Yeah, very much so. So yeah. kind of shifting the focus a little yeah. bit away from tea. Sorry, I'm, I'm right. conscious, Simon, but um, you know, I, I believe you had this project that you were um, uh, you were kind of uh, working towards at least of compiling a book of yes. remembrance. That's, yes. So this is for the for the old Brownstonians, and the, and the the thing that sort of. Um, so we, as I think I said earlier on, we've got 83 old brown students who were killed in the Second World War. And we need a book, really, to commemorate them. Mm. And this book isn't just about their names, it's about their, about them, their time at Brownston, um, and also, you know, sadly, how they died or where they died. And part of this was sparked by the fact that my father, when he left Brownston, he left in 39, um, obviously, went he had went up to Cambridge and then very quickly into the war in the RAF. And a lot of the OBs who died in the Second World War, he would have been at school with him. And so that sort of resonates quite strongly with me. Um, and because you know, father was lucky he got through the war, and a lot of his chums here didn't. Um, and so that really sort of brought it home to me, um, plus the fact that we have a wonderful, sadly now no longer with us, Joanna Dean, who um, helped out in the archives for a while here, um, and she was absolutely passionate about getting this book over, over the line. And so I, for her, more than anything, we need to get this book done, because yeah. she was instrumental in kick-starting the project. Of course, absolutely. So it's almost like a, almost like a, a, a small testimony yeah. to, yeah, to Joanna in a way. Yeah, and if you go into the Bride Church, you'll see the the, the boards on the on the on the side of the wall there with all the um, um, 
the names of those who gave their lives in the Second World War, and it was Joanna who really got that one Kicks going, and, and yeah, bless right. her, she actually funded it and got those bought up herself. So wow. it was, you know, she she was she was absolutely she was a saint um, in trying to uh, get. France, and, and we do recognise the ROVs, don't get me wrong, we've, got the, we've had the war memorial there for a, a very long time. Yeah, right. This was just trying to get something which is going to be like a book that anybody can pick up and read. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, so we want to get this project now done. So very, very memento in the yeah. kind of whole yeah, project absolutely. scheme. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And um, independent from your, kind of, from your father's stories mm. and, you know, yeah. listening to what he had to say and his yeah. views on the war, uh, were you interested in this sort of thing anyway at school? Yes. So, were you, so did you have a huge interest well, the, in history? I, or? Well, I, I suppose I, w I was interested in the Second World War at school, but probably more... I mean, I suppose I was only what, born six years after World War II ended. But I don't know, it's something that stayed with me all the way through, and now I've, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Um, uh, and I wouldn't profess to be an expert at any stretch of the imagination, but it, it's, it's a subject that really interests me. Um, and why, why the first, Second World War, not the First World War? Well, probably because my parents and parents of my chums, you know, were they, they were all involved in it. Absolutely. Mm. So did that, how did that, so kind of outside of your um, kind of perhaps interest in history at school, yeah. how did your, um, your parents' perspective um, kind of add that kind of additional parallel to, to um, history for you? Well, funnily enough, my father never really talked about it. And I think you'll find that's the case with a lot of people. Right. They didn't talk about it. But he did leave behind um, some papers that I've turned into a book for our family about his time in, in, in World War II. And he, my mother, she, was a, she worked on the searchlights in, in, in World War II. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite possible that their involvement, um, albeit both of them would have said in a very modest way, was something that sparked my interest. Of course, mm. yeah. So, um, and, you know, you've kind of had heavy involvement, not only in, um, you know, kind of your, you know, your Kenya journey pretty yeah. recently, but also I know you've been to like the Netherlands and other places yeah. like that. Yeah. So we've seen some um, OBs over there um, and um, we, we did that trip and we've got photographs of um, some of their graves and the, you know, there are stories which are harrowing in the extreme and it's very difficult to stand by the graveside of um, Charles Davis, who was head boy here. And read out how he died. I mean, it's it was it's a it's a tearjerker. There is no doubt about it. Um, but you know, for Charles Davis, there were lots of others. Um, there's a, a civilian called um, Strode, um, who was so important in his job. Um, he left France, and he was so he was a very good engineer, and he was so he was so important to the a project about. A machine we never know what machine it was that he was making or helping design um, that they wouldn't let him join up and he died um, when he was on his bicycle he got knocked off his bicycle wow. hit his head and he died but he gave as much to the war as a lot of other people did but you know but he wasn't he wasn't fighting yeah actively, but he was actually but yeah, still had a huge war he effort. was a, a, a wonderful a wonderful chap um, so yeah 
Tolian, is there kind of a story? I mean, that's I think that's quite an interesting story because it doesn't, you know, you, you hear about all the kind of yeah. deaths and, yeah. you know, the typical comical deaths in, yeah. deaths in a way that, you know, yeah. have a direct involvement in the wars, you know, yeah. fighting on the front line, you know, but deaths like these, it's very yeah. easy, I find, uh, you know, just in general for people to forget about it. I know, I know. And, and there was another um, OB who was, was only 19 and he became an air raid warden in London before he even joined up. And he got clobbered in the Blitz, you know, and died in the Blitz. So there are these very sad stories. Um, and as you rightly say, because they weren't fighting or um, weren't in the Air Force, or anything, they can tend to be forgotten and they shouldn't be forgotten. Absolutely. Is there a story that you would say resonates with you particularly more than any other story? Um, no, I think, I think they all, I think every single one of them has to resonate with me because they were old Brownstonians. Yes. So it's, it's as simple as that. I think one of the most m moving ones was one of the, where we went off to, uh, when we were in, in uh, Holland and we went to see um, the grave of um, an OB who had fought at Arnhem and had survived Arnhem. And Arnhem was one of the bloodiest um, battles um, it took place in the Second World War, and he um, he was captured by the Germans and put on a lorry and was to be taken off to a POW camp. And when he um, um, when he was on this lorry, two two soldiers jumped off to escape, and one was caught, the other one actually got away. Um, but unfortunately, the SS guard who was guarding them was so Cross, he emptied his machine gun into the back of the lorry and he killed um, the, the OB. Um, and the th and I think the most moving thing of it all for us was that, um, and it's actually, it, it is, it's, it's exceptionally moving. You, you, can't get a, you can't get away from it. But when we went off to see, um, to, to find his grave, actually on the day that he had been killed, on the, on the, um, um, on the anniversary when he was killed, um, we got to the cemetery and there were, the local school had sent out all their pupils to mark this anniversary and they do it every single year. And this was now 75, 76 years on since this had happened. But every year the school children come out with a Union Jack and stand there. And we happened to be there when they did it. And it's it is very very moving indeed. Would you say that kind of aspect of it really kind of brought a whole different dimension of the of this of that particular story to life in a way? Yes, I think I think the very I think I mean the Dutch are a wonderful it's a wonderful country and they are so grateful to what the Brits did in the Second World War to try and liberate them. Um, and Arnhem was the famous thing where it didn't work out. Um, and I think you know it was a, it was it, it, one of the extraordinary things was that they took, they took out this Union Jack, <clears throat> um, unfolded it, and stood there while somebody said a prayer, and then at the end of the ceremony, they folded it up beautifully, and with such reverence, to go home with, to come back in a year's time, and they'll do it again and again and again. 
it's extraordinary. And so you you say to yourself, well, actually, in that far away field, um, is um, there's an old brown stone in lying there, who every year is um, saluted by the local population. I think that's a fabulous, wonderful yeah, it tradition. Is. It is. And actually, Bry, if they could, should go out there. Um, it's in September when it, it, it happens. And just sort of um, one day, perhaps, a group of guys should go out there. Because it is, it's very short, very short ceremony. But it's um, so, so, so it's meaningful, so absolutely, moving. Absolutely right. It really is. I'm, I'm noticing, Simon, that you've got um, the Bry Life magazine oh, yes. in front of you. And I know you've got a little page about, about well, your kind of journey. Well, that was, yeah, you. that was the, yes, it was absolutely, it was all about, it was all about that. Um, and the, the story about, certainly about, um, you know, Charles Davis and, and others, because we went to see two or three um, um, uh, graves. We saw four graves on that trip. Um, and, yeah, it was, uh, unfortunately... The most important page never got printed, so which was all about the ceremony I've just told you about. Right. But you know, um, we 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 need to keep these people in our minds. We really do. So I think what's really interesting is that um, I'm not quite sure on the statistics, but I know that, you know there, as you said, 80, 80, 83, 83, 83 OBs, yeah. you know, who fought and gave their lives in the war. Yeah. Um, in so many different countries. Do you happen yeah. to know off the top of your head, like the furthest or kind of most distant place here from Brighton that an OB um, passed away from during the war, or the war period at least, um, or at least the guy... most extraordinary? One. <laughs> um, there's one guy in the Seychelles. He he he, he died. He, he he crashed his plane in the Seychelles. Um, there are in Libya. Got quite a few in Libya. Um, we've got some in Myanmar. Wow. Um, so they are they are they are dotted around. Um, and it would be so good if we were able to to get OBs who live in those areas mm. to go and visit the grave. Take take a photograph of, of the grave so that we could perhaps one day illustrate this book with the with the pictures of their um, their graves in it. Um, and it would be I think you know that's that I would I would love to see that happen. Gosh, that's amazing. But no, there there are I've got the statistic here somewhere. I'll, I'll um. <laughs> Sorry to make you kind of fish through <laughs> all the, all the <laughs> I, have, I have actually got them with me, but um, it's going to be a question if I can find them or not. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's um. We had, yeah, it, was, it was actually 85, 81 in World War Two, two in Malaysia and two in Korea. The two guys who died in Korea, which is in 1950 and 53, um, and, um, sorry, they, they didn't die in the that's when the war took place. They were old Brownstonians and they died on the same day. Oh. And I don't even know if they knew each other. Gosh, isn't that so coincidental? Yeah, I know. And they were d defending the same um, piece of land. So yeah, yeah, wow. They, so they, so it's, it's extraordinary. It is possible they could have known each other, but it's un they perhaps unlikely. They have two years difference between them. Wow. Wow. Gosh, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So all these little things come up, really. So, um, yeah. So interesting. I think, you know, well, just another one for you, actually. So um, obviously quite a lot of people, and this is, I can imagine, one of the most challenging things about this sort of thing is a lot of, not just strictly OBs, you know, a lot of people in general to do with the war died and they don't have a known cause of death, or yeah. perhaps that, you know, people aren't aware of where their body is mm. or what happens to them. Yeah. So what's that kind of process? If someone's died but perhaps doesn't have a grave, what kind of happens to them? Well, they don't remember that, that. So every, every um, person who fought in the Second World War who doesn't have a grave will be commemorated on a war memorial. 
because a lot of them, you know, trade came to, you know, if, if a bomb hit them, there was not much left. So um, where they couldn't have a body, they are commemorated on, on a war memorial. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's, I mean, that's tricky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And In again, I've got the numbers on, on um, how many we've got there, and I'll, I'll come up with that in a minute if you keep me talking about something else. No, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. No, um, I'm just a little bit conscious of time, Simon. So yeah. I'll kind of move on. I think we said this last time, but um, in general, kind of shifting the focus back to Bryanston a little yes. bit. Yes. Um, before we kind of get onto the final statistics, what is your? I think I might have asked you this last time, but what is your biggest kind of almost suggestion or piece of advice that you could offer to Bryanston students here at Bryanston, if that makes sense here today? Um, any age, you know, kind of just age, targeting yeah, the whole. Okay. So all I say is. Um, how lucky everybody's been to have an education like you get at Branston. Um, and I think the great thing about this school, I found with, with my son as well, who was here, is that the school teaches you how to communicate. And if you can communicate, you're on, you're, you're, you're on the right path. And I used to have to interview a number of people who would come in for jobs, and they would... Um, I'd know within, I'd know within twenty seconds, as they walked through the door, whether they were going to be okay or not. Um, and if they, so all I would ever say to somebody is, when you go in for an interview, smile. A lot of people, you'd be surprised how many people don't smile. Smile, be confident, but not be overconfident, um, and show a real eagerness. And a willingness to have that job and if you can show that to a respective employer you're on the right track now you know you then may say well your your qualifications aren't good enough or it is but it gets it it will get you certainly a long way the number of times i had people coming in who looked shuffled in looked at the floor um wouldn't engage found difficulty in keeping eye contact um, and it's 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 a real negative that. So I'd focus on on on, on those kind of key communicative yeah. skills. And not everybody can be the brightest person out there. I mean, you know, you can't. But if you have got the ability to communicate and interact with people, it's a huge plus. Hugely, yeah. I think it's a very transparent. I mean, you could be skill. the. I mean, if you if you put put it this way, if you can have an operation. And your surgeon, you're nervous, mm. but you know the surgeon's good, but the surgeon actually doesn't communicate with you very well. You're not going to feel it's particularly less, good, yeah. are you? Yeah, absolutely. But if you've got somebody who's confident and I catches your eye and has a bit of a laugh and a joke with you, so much for reassurance. So much it is, and that's really to me, that's a huge amount of. Um, it's it's hugely helpful to have those characteristics. And Bryson definitely kind of does absolutely. offer the opportunity yeah, for that, sure. which is great. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And always has done, I think. And, you know, I think my father, who um, was here, um, he would have said exactly the same thing of how Branson sort of um, got him going back in the 19, 1930s, 1920s. Yeah. Wow, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Simon, just before we quickly sign off for, for the evening, do you, do you happen to have the statistics for us at all? Or Sorry, I apologise to keep making you fishy. There's a lot of notes. I everyone, must tell so. you one quick... I'll tell you, I haven't got them here, but I could. I'll, I can get them for you and I'll let you know. But one, one interesting thing about um, France, my father, it'll take a couple of minutes, was the fact that um, he came here and he... What he got out of France was wonderful um, lifelong friendships, particularly with people at school with, but also with the masters. And part of that was that they went on trips. And my father was given a love of the mountains and walking by. Oh gosh, them! Oh gosh, we, I, I've completely forgotten to, to mention the, um, Dick, Dick the Harden, trip. Now Harden, Harden House. You know yes, that? correct. Yeah, absolutely. So Dick Harden taught my dad here, and he taught me, funnily enough. Um, and he would take my father off um, and they go they go walking up in, in, in the Lake District in Wales. Anyway, they decided to go out to um, build a path on the, in, in the valley on the lead up to Mont Blanc. And this was in 1938. And so a Branson party went out there by train. They bust over the St. Bernard Pass to Cormayeur and then they walked up, uh, up the valley where they camped. And the idea was then to build this path, and the path is being built for the to thank the guys who brought down the bodies of two old Brownstone, not Brownstone, two two climbers, one of whom was the nephew of the headmaster of the Downs Prep School that sent a lot of kids to Brownstone, and my father being the Downs. Anyway, the Italians, and this is 1938, said no, you can't build the path. So we're going. To, so there, my Brownstone party therefore was stuck out there. What do we do? Well, the answer was, we'll go and climb Mont Blanc. And so they decided, which you could do in a day, you can, you can climb Mont Blanc in a day. But they only didn't have any equipment or anything like that. So Dick Harden and the other master, Jeff Morris, hired a guide and they decided to climb Mont Blanc in shorts. They were all just shorts and nothing else, in, and, and, a, and a flimsy top. And off they went. And uh, getting towards the top, the, um, the, the guy said, we're going to have to turn around and go back because we're not going to be able to get back before dark. So they all just turned around and went back, disappointed. Yeah. And they were walk, walking over a, um, a large, um, um, I want to say, it's not an iceberg, it's a, um, uh, a glacier. Uh, Jeff Morris was, the master was leading the group and they were all on a rope with my father behind him. And he fell off, and he fell over the over the um, um, glacier, and he took my father with him, and he could see they were all roped up together. They took the uh, another boy with them, and they were only saved by the last person putting in his whacking in his ice um, pick, and wrapping the rope round it, and they were then hauled back up. And if they hadn't, if they, that chap hadn't done that, I wouldn't be sitting. Wow. They so they all through. would have they would wow, have all would been it. Yeah. Straight into a crevasse. And it just you know, Branson in those days it was there's no health and safety. I mean it was just it just didn't exist. But it <laughs> was that, that it was that pioneering great spirit that the school had and still continues to have. I of mean course. you have your Nepal trips now, don't you? Which uh, <laughs> which get you out there and you go out with members of the staff. Yeah, there. But in those days that's what Branson did. Um and you know, I, I find that actually now that I sit here, I find it quite amusing that there's something like that. Gosh, yes, yeah. just yeah. just saved by the you know the so, yeah, skin yeah. of his you know, yeah, skin yeah. of his pickaxe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
That's yeah. cool. That's crazy. Isn't that such a yeah. cool story? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. So, That's one to remember. There we are, man. Yeah. Simon, thank you no. so, so much no. for your time. It's great no. to talk to you again, Good. of course. And uh, it's great to have you back, <laughs> yeah. honestly. You could do this more regularly. <laughs> well, you never know. You, you never know. It's great. Well done, you, for having such an initiative to have these these um, talks going on. Oh, yeah. not at all. No, it's my pleasure. And it's great to have, you know, people like yourself, you know, explain such incredible stories. So, Simon, thank you very much. Everyone, to our, well, to our listeners, we'll be back at you probably about 10 minutes. Actually, we've got another um, uh, interviewee coming in in just a second. Uh, Phil Howard, everyone, OB. Um, so that's going to be a pretty cool story that he'll have to share with us. Um, so tune back in in about 10 minutes time for our double whammy here today. Um, but all that's left for me to say now is thank you, Simon. It's been great to have you here. And uh, hopefully, I'm sure it'll be nice if we could see each other again soon. It's thank you, Ollie. We will. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks so much, Simon. See you, right. see you soon, everyone. Yeah. And uh, thanks again.